Welcome to another Charity Chat podcast. I'm Osman Mughal and today I'm speaking with Shaf Mansour, who is Product Manager at The Access Group. Shaf has previously led digital teams at Bernardo's and Action for Blind People. For over 25 years, The Access Group has enabled thousands of non-for-profit organisations run more efficiently and raise more money, whether that is attracting more supporters and members, fundraising or managing finances. In today's conversation, we discuss how the Access Group is continuing to support organisations of all sizes through the pandemic and beyond, with a particular focus on digital transformation, helping charities grow and sustain their income, including tips on developing a digital strategy to meet the needs of tomorrow. This podcast is sponsored by Charity People, our platinum sponsor. And without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Hello, good evening, Shaq. Nice to um, have you join us today on Charity Chat. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. It's very nice to be here. Thank you. And before we get into the podcast, Shaq, and discuss a range of topics, which I am sure we'll do, could you please just give a, a little bit of an introduction to yourself, your career history and your current role at the Access Group? Yes, absolutely. So um, I'm a product manager here at Access at the moment, and I specialise in our not-for-profit technology and tools. Um, I've worked with the charity sector for over 10 years of my career. Six years of that was on the charity side and just over four years now on the software provider side. And I've held digital roles at various charities, including Bernardo's, which is the UK's largest children's charity, where I was head of digital content and communities. Um, I've also worked Action for Blind People as a digital manager. And I had a contract at UNICEF where I got to work with uh, an incredible digital hub, which was made up of a brilliant team of experts in each field, which included things like paid search, um, search engine optimization, email and social media. So really got to learn a lot from them. Um, I've also done a bit of work for a local branch of Mind um, over in, in East London, where I spent lots of times at police stations in East London working with children and vulnerable adults. So it was very much more of a frontline role there. And um, I experienced there the physical limitations and burdens of paperwork and clunky systems that are expected of frontline workers. So a really, really incredible experience doing that on the frontline as well. Um, and I draw upon these experiences, along with those of many of my colleagues who have also worked at charities as well, um, when we're trying to solve problems in the work we do at Access. So, yeah, it also means that I um, genuinely can, can understand and feel the pains and frustrations when I'm talking um, to the people at the charities that we work with. Absolutely. And and I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's so important that when you're working for an organisation like you do supporting charities, you have an understanding of the challenges and also opportunities that they may face as well. I think absolutely. Yeah, it's um, it's very valued within my colleagues and within the team we work with. It's very, very valued the access to have that insight and that knowledge because people come to us and ask us, as a sense check sometimes um, of how it is and then we, we go and kind of validate that with the charities that we talk to it's you know it's like we it's so easy to be able to say well you know charities need to do this need to do that but realistically it's hard to operate um, for charities especially like hard to operate strategically at the best of times based you know due to the demands that are kind of put on them from from all the work they have to do let alone trying to balance a strategy in a time like this alongside you know, the urgency that something like a pandemic might throw. So it's super helpful to have 
that insight and that knowledge um, to be able to bring it bring it into our work and make sure that we we really do empathise and really do understand rather than kind of preach and expect people to just get what we're talking about. Absolutely, Shep. And, and for those that might not be aware, what are the aims, mission and values of the Access Group? Because I know you have different divisions and you work in the non-for-profit division. And I just want to get a flavour from you to understand how you support organisations, particularly during the COVID-19 period. Yeah, so Access um, as a business just you know believes that business should make a positive difference in society. And many of us, as I mentioned just earlier, that in the team, including you know myself, of course, have come from the not-for-profit sector, worked for charities, so totally kind of like understand the challenges faced um, by charities and what they're up against. The not-for-profit division, where within the division I work, um, has over 25 years of helping charities of all sizes, and it's you know whether that's raising money or managing operations more efficiently, um, or attracting new supporters engaging existing supporters, all those kind of things, managing finances, managing staff, managing volunteers. There's lots of different uh, solutions that help with all those things. And there's 25 years of experience doing that. Um, what we try and say or try and do is like we, we take care of the technical side of things so that the software is as integrated as possible and the charities can focus much more on the things that really matter the most to them. So, for example, things like their supporters and their beneficiaries rather than spend weeks tangling getting tangled up in in, in complex um, technology problems. Um, lots of charities we've been talking to over the past year at least, you know, have been saying that um, what a godsend has been for them to have enabled their online fundraising as one example through our website platform, uh, especially given the challenges that the pandemic has created. So lots of them obviously didn't know, nobody knew that the, the situation was going to be as it was, and they they made a move for whatever reason just before, and they were just they're so relieved that they've done it. Um, and a few of them we've seen have made that move over the last year. And you know, if, talking about our mission, we can say that it really is to help charities not just grow but also to sustain their income. Those are kind of like almost north stars in themselves when we're when we're trying to focus and if we're trying to question ourselves about whether what's the right thing to do, what's the next thing to do. We always try and do things that will help a charity grow and sustain income. Um, and to help them do this, we've been working closely with, with the charities themselves to develop you know, some powerful dashboards, for example, that provide insights about supporters and their income that they can take immediate action on. So, you know, it's not unusual to hear that there's lots of data and lots of lots of information, but not really knowing where to start looking and what to start doing with it. So from from speaking to many charities, we try and bring that knowledge um, and share it across the other charities that might not have that knowledge in-house. And then this includes, you know, information such as, for example, if I'm getting into the detail of it, but like it includes information like giving them, you know, a, a data point about their average donations, number of new donors, number of returning donors, uh, number of regular givers signed up. And these sort of things often would take someone, you know, a bit of effort to download a CSV report and play around with um play around with the lookups and whatever else people need to do in Excel. So taking that, taking that out, it just saves lots of time and, and makes, makes the focus more around what's the next step that we need to take to help us generate more income or help us, you know, convert our one-off donations into regular donations to make it more sustainable. Um, yeah, that's the kind of things we, we try and focus on and, and it drives us all. It keeps us focused. It keeps us driven to a goal that is, I think I've, I've never heard a charity tell me that we're not trying to grow and we're not trying to sustain our income. 
Um, we were doing this before the pandemic, and it's interesting, you know, how the pandemic's come and impacted things. But it's, um, I think, one of the biggest impacts is around income and fundraising. Um, and, and we're going to see, you know, it's even more important that charities can be self-sufficient um, and and to, to ensure that they can deliver the services they need to deliver. Absolutely. And you make a really good point there about warm donors, because I know as a fundraiser myself how important warm donors have been during COVID-19. Um, I've spoken to many colleagues across the sector as well. Um, and they have, um, you know, provided similar sentiments that the warm donors have really um, provided a, a lot of support throughout this past year in order to serve the beneficiaries. And I think that's so important to focus on because organisations really need to invest in that area as well. Um, you also mentioned that there's been, due to COVID-19, of course, there's been a heightened focus on digital services and that's accelerated the change. I mean, that change was always coming, as, as you will know, but it's, it's accelerated it um, definitely. What tips do you think you can provide to organisations that are establishing a robust digital strategy, whether that be a fundraising strategy or in, in another area of the business? And what areas do you think that they should particularly focus on? And this might be different for, say, a smaller charity uh, with volunteers and a few employed, uh, employed employees, um, and then it may be different for slightly larger organisations. Yeah, so I think the first thing around this is a really good question, by the way. So I think the first thing around this is um, any strategy that's whether it's related to um, fundraising, digital, any other area in a charity shouldn't be done in isolation. I think that's often a trap um, that that can happen due to the silos that people tend to work in. Um, it should never be in isolation. So it's really important that if anyone is working on something like that, it should be completely aligned and tied to the overall corporate strategy and part of that. Um, another, another kind of common trap to not fall into is thinking that it has to be all about the long term um, and strategy has to be about the long term. It's not, it's not necessarily always true. And we've seen already kind of how things, how fast things can change whether due to technology changes and disruption in technology or whether something like a global pandemic can change everything. So we need to be able to think, I think the way to think about it is what can we do now in order to give us the best advantage in the future? And that's, I think, if, ch if charities can answer those questions, so it's thinking about the now, but also with an aim of what they're trying to achieve in the future, I think that's fine. Not to feel like they have to create a five-year strategy and then stick rigidly to it. Um, in fact, I, I wouldn't, even try and do a five-year digital strategy it needs to be shorter than that and and with the always with the caveat in it that it needs to be agile and needs to have the possibility to change it and shift as things shift as well um in terms of kind of more specific things i think they should be really charities really need to be thinking about infrastructure uh they will know now whether they have a good infrastructure whether that's to enable their staff to work comfortably and very importantly, secure, securely with, with all the data that's being shared around and, and having to just, you know, they're not in the same office with the same servers anymore. So need to really make sure that the infrastructure is solid and secure um, and fit for purpose. And then what they need, what, what do they need to attract and engage their supporters as well? What, what kind of, what tools do they need to do that and make sure that everything's joined up? Uh, should be planning ready for growth. We've already mentioned that. I don't think any have any, we're not thinking about their growth. Um, and thinking about how they can 
build kind of sustainable, reliable, secure infrastructure to help them achieve their goals. Definitely, Shaf, and I think you're absolutely right in terms of a strategy being agile and needing to adapt to the circumstances. If COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's that you can have a strategy in place, but things happen in the external environment, which means organisations need to adapt and adapt really quickly. Um, and, and you also mentioned that you're talking to a lot of charities, you know, particularly in the last year, and a lot of charities have uh, sought your support uh, and your expertise as an organisation. I wanted to get an understanding of what have been the main challenges um, your clients have come to you with and how have you tried to overcome those those challenges with them? Yeah, so we've spoken to hundreds of people across probably about at least 100 charities in, in terms of like one-to-one conversations. You know, I'm talking like um, hour-long phone calls. It's, it's what we spend a lot of, in the, in the product team at least, we spend a lot of our time doing that. Um, it's really important that we're very close to the situation, to the charities, to really understand um, the problems as much as possible. The feedback that I'm hearing um, from the charities that I speak to, along kind of like, you know, if we put it alongside what you read in the sector reports, it's clear that there's been an uneven distribution of resources over the past year. So whilst some charities may report having, you know, big increases in their income year on year, it may be at the expense of other charities that might be deemed less of a priority by their donors at the moment. So it's not, you know, it's not uncommon to hear that NHS and health related charities have seen huge um, increases in their income, but other charities might not have seen as much. Uh, at the same time, we know that demand for services has increased and will probably continue to increase. For example, things like mental health services, we don't even really know about the actual longer term impacts of the pandemic on people, but it's it's probably quite likely that there are other services that are going to be impacted by that in the long time, in the long term that we'll need to, to you know, help people that have have, have got things going through things in, in, um, in relation to all this. On top of all of that, just to add another kind of thing to the mix, you know, social distancing measures create additional barriers for service delivery, obviously. It doesn't make things easy when you have to stay two metres away from people and, and wear a mask. So, so there's also that to consider as well. And we don't even really know how long all this has to go on for. So that's the gist of, of if I had to summarise it into a few things, there's definitely more than that going on, but that's, that's the key things that we're hearing. But to kind of talk about it in a positive light as well, what we do know is... The pandemic has also created, you mentioned earlier about um, a kind of like uh, a bit of a of transformation and it has it has been a bit of that. It's like it's accelerated, but also like a bit forced. It's, there wasn't really a choice. So we're referring to it as a forced digital transformation across the sector. And it's created at the same time huge opportunities for charities to really innovate and increase their reach and impact. Um, Digital tools obviously help circumnavigate some of those physical limitations I was talking about, and that's beyond online fundraising. Um, so, you know, where social distancing limitations are not so much of an issue when you're direct, when you're interacting using digital channels, and it does mean that perhaps there are opportunities to reach um, some people that might have been more difficult to reach previously. Um, and also, if we add to that, you know, because it's not just charities that have matured with their use of digital but also people have matured with their use of digital and devices as well. So there's there's really an opportunity there, I think, to reconsider um, audiences, 
perhaps engage with those that might have been excluded before because they were not deemed to be digitally literate or for whatever reason. Um, I don't think that we should say that there's no more digital divide, then that would be a dangerous line to take, but for certain, the digital divide might be different or might be slightly smaller. And there's definitely a lot of work to do to make sure that we continue to not leave people out. Um, and you know, it's no secret that the sector has relied heavily on face-to-face -face relationships and COVID has taught us that it's just not enough to do that anymore, no longer enough to do that. So we do need to develop and embrace more scalable and sustainable ways of working. What I can say is from the feedback that I've had from speaking with literally hundreds of, of people across hundreds of charities, what I know without a doubt at the moment is that uh, income generation and income diversification um, are the name of the game. Even though that we talk about there's going to be a demand on services, but without the resources to deliver those services and grow those services and support those services, it's going to be very difficult to do that. So um, it really is a lot of the focus thinking about how they're going to get the, get more income and diversify their income from from to, to be able to generate it from other places, um, from those that they've relied on previously. And the kind of biggest opportunities where we've seen that charities can make the biggest difference right now is really through a better digital fundraising tools. That's where a lot of our focus is going to be um, because we think that better tools will result in a better return on their investment if, if, if they're buying tech to do these things. Um, and just the uh, back kind of the way Access are doing things at the moment, the way we're doing things is really building our technology and tools so that they can be adopted easily and then the charity can grow as the tools can grow with the charity as they grow. So what we're trying to do is build things that can be kind of the entry level can be um, a bit lower, can be easy to get into and set up. And then it's there and it's got extra functionality that the charity can tap into later on when they get to the point that they need it. So they're not overwhelmed with too much functionality and too many things that they don't know how to use. Um, and I think that that sort of investment will mean that the opportunities of now will kind of stay for the longer term. Yeah, lots of great points there, Shaf, and a lot to ex explore and tease out. A couple of thoughts that came into my mind. One is the point around digital exclusion. I think you're right. There's been lots of opportunities that the sector has taken advantage of through digital um, and almost forced into that position, as you said, during COVID-19. But I work for a UK children's charity. A lot of our services have moved online very successfully and we're reaching far more numbers than we were ever able to reach before. However, in the same breath, it does seem that there are a significant proportion of the population that are digitally excluded and continue to be digitally excluded. And unfortunately, they tend to sit with the most vulnerable members of our community. So what tips or advice would you give to organizations that are finding it challenging to reach those, those communities? And, and the second point on, on top of that is around what's the balance? What do you see as a balance between face-to-face -face versus di digital? Um, I know it's a difficult one to answer, particularly when we're not even out of lockdown. That's a really good question. Um, and I, I, I think I would be, I don't think I would be in a position to give a definitive answer on that because I don't know the answer to that. I don't think digital I think in some areas digital can replace face to face and in other areas perhaps not um it's it's quite subjective i think in terms of what the face to face would be in each circumstance i think um 
the initial, just the first bit of the question around the digital exclusion and, and reaching people, I think you're absolutely right. We, it'd be very, very naive to jump to a huge conclusion. I mean, these are all, there's, what, what's happened, you know, what we're talking about the last year, there's, there's lots of assumptions out of it. We don't really know, as I mentioned, what the longer term impact is going to really be like. And it would be dangerous and naive to think, to jump to huge conclusions and think that, oh, everyone's going to be on devices because everybody's used Zooms and that's going to be fine. You know, that, that that would be very short-sighted and we'd be missing the point about the longer-term impact on the poorest people in, in the UK and beyond the UK, you know, but, but I'm talking about the, the sector here at the moment. So the long-term impact could be that more people are driven, as you know, as the real kind of numbers of unemployment, the real kind of longer-term effects of all of that take hold, more people could be driven into poverty. And I think that would probably contribute to more people being excluded because we take it for granted myself certainly that I have my phone and my device and my unlimited broadband and my unlimited um, data that I can I can just use I don't even think about it but that's not the case for everyone and to think that because because people might know how to use zoom that they they necessarily can access it um, is is very, would be dangerous and short-sighted I think so I, I'm definitely not suggesting that. Um, in, in answer to your question about how to think about that, I think it's a very difficult one. And before the pandemic, there was a point about, I think, a really strong point about charities work needing to work together more. And I think that is going to be even more important now because where charities can join up and partner, I think, is going to be is going to be absolute value for beneficiaries in, in this time. For example, where a charity needs to reach vulnerable people, perhaps partnering with a charity that might be able to supply infrastructure or devices or help with that kind of logistics, I think, is a really interesting area to look in and being you know, very thoughtful and strategic about those partnerships um, and figuring out you know, how, those, how joining forces, joining resources um, to reach more people is, is, is possible. I think it's definitely possible. I think that's an area that is very interesting to look at rather than everyone trying to go it alone. I completely agree with you, Shaf. Uh, really good point about partnership working and collaboration across the sector. And one of the things I think has come out of COVID-19, one of the positive things that have come out of COVID-19 is you're seeing organisations of varying sizes working together um, to ensure that the most vulnerable citizens of our um, communities are being supported. Um, so you would find more instances where large national organizations are working with smaller grassroots organizations. And that that combination, I feel, is going to be very important and maybe even a pathway to success moving forwards. Because yes, you need the infrastructure of larger organizations, the capacity, etc. But you also need working alongside smaller organizations um, because they have the trust of local communities, for example, that perhaps larger organisations don't. So that mix is really important. It's it's a, it's a really great point, and I think it's um it's all it's all part of that you know thoughtful strategic thinking. I think it's not just a matter of of, of charities joining up because for the sake of doing. I think it needs to be thought through. And um, if we're talking about human beings, real people, and you can't just have a, a charity kind of steam into an area that. People don't know and trust it. If you're talking about dealing with vulnerable people, um, it needs to be trusted. So if there are smaller, those smaller charities, local charities that know, they know the audience, they know the beneficiaries very well, um, 
and they have a they have some kind of rapport with them is is um is really useful to use and also just to gain further you know better insight we've previously spoken about the importance of digital education so in yeah. organizations reaching out to communities to educate them on digital services and how they can access them how they can um, make sure that their lives are improved as a result of it and I just wanted to get your opinion on how that fits in to ensuring that not only are organizations are more digitally savvy but also their beneficiaries. I think it's a, it's a difficult one again because you still have to reach those people in the yeah. first place but I think the key is to make things design things by design they should be intuitive enough to not need explaining so much and that's also how we try and develop the software as well even internally we try and write as little documentation much to some people's frustration but we try and you know if there's a question about something we'll try and answer it in the software from our example i think it's similar with services as well by design um even how websites are structured and designed they should be really intuitive it should be really clear clear signposting, clear wording, make it really accessible. It comes back to accessibility. In terms of teaching people around the tech, I think, um, again, it's it's better to do it by design so that it's simple to use. If there are complex services where you need to get complex information from people, it really you really need to think about the steps you take to do that. If the first stage of interaction, you're trying to get all the complicated information, it's unlikely to have positive results um, and you may end up causing more harm than good by frustrating people that you're trying to help even more. And um, so there are, you know, you can break things down. You can, you can generate the first interaction so that at least the person can get in touch with someone and then you can collect the more complex information later. Really great practical tips there, Shaf. Well, in the last year, we've seen the growing importance of EDI in discussions across the charity sector. And organizations have come out and said that they want to be more equal, more inclusive and more diverse. And I believe to ensure that happens, every part of the organization needs to feed into that and make sure it happens because it's so important for our sector that it is truly diverse and inclusive. My question was very much on the digital front. How do we ensure that services are truly inclusive digitally? So that may mean having multilingual pages. Um, to ensure that a range of different service users are able to access the service. It may be that particular groups of people may interact digitally more than others. And so it's just about having that understanding. And I wanted your insight into how important that is, what types of conversations you're having with organisations around EDI. Yeah, really, really, really important, really important points, really important area to think about. Um, there's a number of things I can talk about here. So previously with digital, my first real foray or like experience around accessibility and inclusion was when I worked for Action for Blind People. By its nature, we had to really consider accessibility. And I was part of the team leading, um, part of a small team actually, leading on the rebuild of their website at the time then and, and their community um, from, from the ground up. And we approached that in a way of co-production it was a big um a big way of, of, of working at action for blind people and by co-production we mean that we didn't build things in a waterfall way where we would take you know we would go and collect the specs and then go off and build it and hope that it was good enough 
Um, it was by including um, the people that we were building for in the whole process right from the beginning. So the person who co-project managed the whole thing was one of our service users um, and also a trustee was involved as well. And this meant between them running workshops with our users, with them actually running the workshop themselves to make sure that the workshops themselves were inclusive and the people at the workshops could get their points across and they and got their opinion you know, that they were heard. Um, and I think that's really, really important. And that was a huge, huge, um, that yielded huge results for us in terms of, of not falling over and flat on our faces in, in terms of, uh, in terms also like when you get questions, when you get, when you get asked things, because you, you can't, it's, it's never easy to build anything like that, that you're going to please, you're never going to please everyone. So we did sometimes get questions and when people throw things your way, you can with real genuine authenticity answer that this was created in a co-productive way. So um, we, we build the solutions together. So I think that's one, one thing there. Um, I think also, so if I bring it, talk about access a little bit, we've, we talk about diversity and inclusion um, in, a, in a big way. It's hugely valued and actually very much on the agenda at the moment. My colleague who I work very closely with is our, our UX, leading on our UX in our division. And he's big on accessibility and he, he made some changes recently to bring us up to speed on a few things and presented it back to the organisation. And it's just kind of snowballed and we have an accessibility we have accessibility steering groups now across the whole company. So not just within not-for-profit division. So we're not just doing it for the charities we work with, but it's across the whole company so that the products um, across, whether it's working in hospitality or whether it's working in finance or human resources or any of those other, other divisions that we have across the, across the whole company, um, accessibility is, is, is considered and, uh, for, and thought about a lot because obviously the people that, are being supported by the charities may need to interact with other things online as well and it's not just the charity websites and the charity tools that need to be accessible thanks chef it's been um wonderful speaking to you today and before we wrap up just wanted to ask you where people where they can find out more about the access group um and get in touch with you or one of your colleagues yes absolutely so we are on twitter and then we are also, our website is uh, www.theaccessgroup.com forward slash not-for-profit with a yep. hyphen in between the not-for-profit. Um, and also we're on LinkedIn. So if you, if you, you know, search for the Access Group on LinkedIn, we are quite active on LinkedIn as well. So on LinkedIn, you can, if you contact anyone at Access and, and want to get in touch with me, I'm sure people will um, be able to signpost you towards myself. Brilliant. Thanks for speaking to us and taking your time out, Chef. Really appreciate it. And looking forward to um, hearing how you how the Access Group continues to support more charities in the sector. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It was great to speak to Chef today on all things digital, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening. And that leads me to thank our corporate sponsors, Charity People, our platinum sponsor, Giant Squid Audio Lab, sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Aksumit for our website design, RR Yard Photography for our pro bono images, and Forrester Fools who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now. <laughs>